Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans, by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, August 14th, we're studying Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. In today's text, Solomon writes in a style reminiscent of the book of Proverbs, and here Solomon lays out the wisdom of trusting God over all other kinds of folly. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jason Casper. Pastor Casper serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me, Pastor Apple. It's always a pleasure to sit and chat with you about God's Word. That's right. So we get the privilege of talking about Ecclesiastes 7 today. Talk to us a little bit about this book, Meaningless, Meaningless, Says the Preacher, or Vanity of Vanities. Yeah, if we, we go if we go with Latin, uh, vanitas, vanitatum, omnia, vanitas, or in Hebrew, hevel, hevel, all is hevel, well, part sort of Hebrew-ish. Yeah, the, the, the thing that is it's not so much even the meaningless. It's kind of cool because that's one of those one of those words that becomes difficult to translate and to communicate clearly and well. That everything is almost insubstantial, non-corporeal, a thing that you can't quite touch, like a mirage, like vapor, like mist, like smoke on the horizon. You get over to get to it to the end of the rainbow, and there's nothing actually to put your hands around. And that's that's the scope of this of this book. Uh, King Solomon's wisdom here, written for us. Mm, circa 913 BC, somewhere thereabouts, near the end of his reign, as he has built this massive kingdom, this massive empire. He has wives aplenty and concubines aplenty and sons aplenty, and yet he has this opinion that there's nothing for him, that he has nothing to lay his hands around. He's accomplished nothing. That is, that really is is a is a a good thing for us Christians to hear that someone who clearly has everything at his fingertips can feel that kind of emptiness apart from God or in, in a way that we have drifted from our moorings in the faith. This really is kind of in context with what we were talking about before the show a little bit. Those in Christianity who have drifted away from the faith and towards the end of their lives are finding their way back or their families are finding their way back, there is still a meaning in life. It's just not in the things we expected to find it in. It's really where God has always had that meaning, where it has always been in the gifts he has for us, not somewhere else. And so this is, this is really where we're going with Ecclesiastes. And in particular here, we get to sort of stumble back into Proverbs a little bit too, where we get into that, that damage control talk. Here are the stupid things you could do. Don't do the stupid things. Do the things that cause less stupidity. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, to hear Solomon speak this way over and over again about vanity, meaninglessness, hevel, the Hebrew word, that idea of a vapor that you reach out but you can't actually grasp, although that is the hard way to learn things, there is the grace of God that's evident when he reveals that to you, that what you have been striving after is meaningless, so cut it out. Here's where you can really find true meaning. Yeah, it's, it is it is in the wisdom of God that it is delivered, and and 
I mean, that's that's another cool aspect of of Solomon and his speaking to us that he's granted wisdom from God, and that wisdom really reveals his own weakness, his own foolishness, his own failure. I've seen all the by receiving all this wisdom of the Lord, he sees that all the things that he's supposedly great for, he really doesn't think of himself as great in that regard. He thinks of himself as as sort of empty in that in that comparison. Yeah. All right. So now you mentioned that today's section is going to, and I, this was my reflection too, reading over it. Today's section is going to be a little bit more like the book of Proverbs, at least in the way that it's structured. Most English translations are going to have it you know, set off in poetic type. What's the, the significance of seeing that kind of wisdom here in, in Ecclesiastes 7? So, among other things, it's good to to reinforce that that thing that's sometimes spoken against by by biblical critics that this really isn't written by Solomon. This is you know the tradition of Solomon's wisdom or the teacher who has con- who has consolidated some of this stuff. Um, that this is clearly Solomon, as we have always received it this way. the The fact that it is written in a very particular way, the way that Solomon writes when he writes proverbs, he writes proverbs this way, and so contained herein is stuff that is very clearly of the same style and of the same sort. So we're getting this great big discussion on both ends about the meaningless meaninglessness of life, and it isn't meaningless because here it is in the middle. We get to this is the meaning of life. This is the important stuff. This is the wisdom God has for us. Just like I told you before. Still true now today. The same the same thing is always the case, both yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's three things, not two things, but you get the general idea. So Solomon at the end of his life, reflecting on all the things that he has seen and done, recognizing their meaninglessness, their vanity, apart from faith and God, continues now to give that wisdom to those who have the ears to hear, which I think again is something that that we do well to listen now rather than wait till the end of our lives to have to look back and have that that regret. Rather, listen now from those who have experienced it, that we might experience the benefits of the wisdom now, it, at this stage in life, and receive it as a gift of God right now. I think that's a big part of the wisdom that Solomon has in this book as a whole. Indeed. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's just wonderfully presented for us. And it is... I, I can't talk too much about how how reassuring it is. I mean, with a little more gray in my beard than you have in yours these days, it it is very confidence instilling to hear that sort of uncertainty and hopelessness and wonder about what's going on and falling back on the one thing, the wisdom from God, which is the thing that is actually that thing that has meaning, that actually contains this salvific message for us, that there is something much more important than the things we think are important. There's a lot more going on in the universe, and particularly, God is preserving you for salvation. So let's not worry so much about the rest of this stuff. All right, well, with that in mind, let's take a look at the text. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, 
and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. That is our text for today. That is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Casper, in terms of this section, I have a hard time kind of breaking it down into to parts. I'm not sure that there is. Do you see any kind of overarching themes that run through each of these proverbial statements? Well, I do see sort of a couplet pairing thing that's going on through each of the each of the statements. We won't call them verses because sometimes there's more than one in a single verse. But what you have is the the positive and the negative, the positive and the negative, the positive and the negative. Um, it's actually almost a little bit like the formula of Concord, the, uh, the the statements to the contrary and the statements in the affirmative. You've you've got this this layout, and the positive statements are unusual. The positive statements strike in such a way that we go, "Wait, are you sure about that?" <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> and I think that's that's both deliberate and it's also true. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, this is one of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry, as we've talked about in other places, especially in the book of Psalms, that you have this parallelism where one statement is put next to another, and depending on the relationship of the two, that helps you to interpret the the both of them. And, and in this case, contrast is going to be the, the primary driver of this Hebrew poetry, rather than, you know, this one builds on the next. Some of that, but mostly contrast, as you've said. So let's let's start to work our way through this, because as you said, I think some of the positive statements are going to be surprising to us. Now, Solomon gets off to, a, I think, a, a fairly easy start in the oh, yeah. first verse that we have. A good name is better than precious ointment. I mean, that, that sounds familiar from the book of Proverbs. So Talk just about that first half of verse one before yeah, we is, add in the the, before we added the, part. the harder part, right? <laughs> Let's yeah. not get to the stinger right away. Yeah. yeah so the, the good name being more, better than a precious ointment. This is this is the thing. How how your neighbor views you is far more important than your own wealth, than your own perceived value outside of the household, or or the the other issue there being that that the rich man is is one that is uh, is going to be taken advantage of, and someone's going to try to rob his house and abscond with what he has and all that stuff. Your good name. It can be slandered against, but it can never be stolen from you because you, you always have the ability to rebuild your good name. But there's also a cool a cool uh, opposite side to that, which is a good name is also the recipient of the good that my neighbor does. When my neighbor treats me positively relative to the Eighth Commandment and builds up my name around those that we, we are gathered together with, that actually improves my station in life. And I have that same responsibility toward, toward my neighbor. This preservation of good name, which is how Luther teaches us to understand the Eighth Commandment, this is how we're supposed to be treating each other all the way as Christians. And so that thing, that development of a, of a, a good reputation in your community and among the people you interact with, that's what this good name is all about. This is how Christians are to conduct themselves. This is how Christians are to build up their neighbor and in our positive interaction between each other. That's, that's more valuable to us than any other sort of wealthy product we could have because a good name actually delivers something of value that is attached to us in a, in a permanent way. 
if we're stripped of everything tomorrow like Job, we still have a good name that we that we can dwell on. Sure. And I mean, I think this is something that we see in everyday life in a variety of ways, that when we have that good name, even if we don't have the, the possessions, the good name ends up being a lot more valuable than the stuff that we hold on to right now. So, I mean, I think that that makes good sense. And again, that's something that Solomon hammers home at a variety of places within the book of Proverbs. It's the next part of verse one that... So, Indeed. Well, wait a second, Before Solomon. we go there, though, oh, go ahead. <laughs> I just had another thought. This actually kind of ties into the the uh, the uh, the shrewd manager, hmm. the parable of the shrewd manager who's who is at the last ditch of his life, going about the business of building a good name for himself when he didn't have one before, because he has nothing else to fall back on. It's almost like he actually read chapter seven, verse one that day, and said, "Oh, that's bad." I should probably do something about this because the master is about to throw me out of the house. I should figure something else out. That's good. Good, good, good. So when you come to that passage in Luke 16, it's very, very difficult. Here is a little bit of light to to shine upon that that parable of Jesus. Now, take us into the next part of verse 1, because this is where, uh, you know, that thought of parallelism within Proverbs, I'm not entirely sure how these things go together. So a good name, better than precious ointment. But then... The day, the day of death, death the day of birth. Day of Hold on birth. a second, Solomon. Wow. Yeah, so, but it's but it's true. <laughs> tell that's us really why. that's really that's where this gets so interesting. The day of birth is the day that we enter into the life of struggle against sin in the flesh, and for this brief moment of eternity, this time span, couple of days, seventy or eighty years, where we dwell on the face of the earth in the midst of sin and toil, toiling away under the sun, to use words of Solomon from elsewhere, this, this is, the, this is the, the moment where we are suffering in, our, in our, un, our uncompleteness and the brokenness of sin. The day of our death is the day that we're delivered from it. When we get to celebrate and gather together and mourn at a funeral, part of the reason that as Christians we, we don't have a hopeless mourning and a hopeless weeping is because we know that our, our, our beloved who are at rest in Christ have now been delivered from sin, they've been delivered from the turmoil of this, of this life, and they are now awaiting everlasting salvation and the restoration of all things in the, re- in the new heavens and the new earth without sin. While we still dwell in this turmoil, we're still the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation, they've actually left the Great Tribulation. The day of death is a better day. It's a, it's a more glorious day than the day of birth. Now, in the context of Solomon talking about life under the sun, I think, you know, just that standard, hey, now you're not toiling for no no reason anymore. That's part of, you know, in, in terms of the, the very immediate context of the vanity of life under the sun, this observable life. From the context of the fullness of Scripture, then, I think what you're saying is is helpful. And and maybe, maybe the way to—and I'm trying to connect what Solomon says in the first half of the verse to the second half— so on the on the day of my death, you then, get your good name. Well, whose name well, is that? Right, that's it's, where I'm think I'm going. It's, so you, it's not you, it's not Pastor Apple. <laughs> the name that the name that is that is your good name on the day of your death is the name of Jesus Christ, which has been marked on your forehead and upon your heart. That's the good name, and that's this that's this wonderful thing that dwells with us that carries us off into the arms of Christ in the day of our death. That's a good name. That's that's far better than than precious ointment or jewels or anything else. Right. And and all of this again from the Christian perspective, none of this is to say 
that there is not joy in this life right now. Solomon has even made that point a couple times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and will do so again. There is joy to know who you are and whose you are in Christ, so that the toil that you have right now is, in fact, a moment of joy and thanksgiving. So we're, we're not, you know, the way that Paul puts it in Philippians 1, to live is Christ, to die is, is gain. gain. Yeah. And that is that is a glorious thing. And, and, and hearing it that way with, with the Pauline language, too, that this this sort of, of juxtaposition that, that when we are delivered from this life, that really is the glory of Christianity. It isn't, and as you say, it isn't, it isn't as if there's nothing good, fun, or enjoyable about this life, but this life is just a, just a brief inkling of what is to come. And there's far, far more beyond this for us who are, who are, who are taken to rest in Christ and die in the faith. Yeah. And the only way that we can have that joy now in this brief time is to recognize the, the fullness of what is ours in Christ. When we don't have that, then this short, brief time is, as Solomon has been saying elsewhere in the book of Ecclesiastes, it is, it is vanity. It is a vapor that cannot be grasped. Mm-hmm. So with, with those things in mind, I do think that that helps to, to set the stage for where Solomon continues in this passage. So verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to, the house, than to go to the house of feasting. So there's the, the contrast. And then he gives the reason for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Help us into this verse. Yeah, the house, the house of mourning, and the house of feasting. Again, the two events we're looking at here are probably uh, wedding feast and then the the day of death, the day of mourning. So the the houses, the gatherings of these two days, it is again from from our from our limited temporal perspective, we see the world in a certain way, and the wedding seems like the more the more glorious celebration. This is where more more fun is had. We have great photos and. And all sorts of things that come from the the wedding itself. Uh, in particular, I kind of find the the way that wedding pictures are are being managed these days a lot of fun. Instead of seeing a few photos that get shared with you, and then there's a book that's at, that lives at someone's house, it all sort of comes out electronically, and a lot of times it'll come out in bursts. And so there's a, a few photos on this day, and a few photos a few weeks later, and a few more photos. And pretty soon you've got hundreds upon hundreds of photos of the event. We don't do that with funerals. <laughs> we don't. Not we generally. Don't, we don't treat them as, as quite as much of a, of a great event, a glorious thing to be celebrated. But this is the thing, the end, of, the end of mankind in this sense, in this life, is at the house of mourning. And this is where we get to dwell upon this notion that this has an end. This being bound up in battle against sin, it comes to an end. There is a point where sin is no longer in battle against us, where we're no longer living this similiustus et peccat, or this both saint and sinner existence, dwelling, wanting to be faithful children of God and unable to be faithful children of God. Instead, that comes to an end, and we are delivered into only righteousness and only blessedness. And that's at the house of mourning. That really is is where that transition happens. The beginning of a wedding feast, that's just another kind of turmoil you get to bring into life that wasn't there yesterday. Which again is contrary that, to the way the, the, the popular world talks about marriage. Certainly, certainly. I think I do think it is that that second part of this verse that is the key to understanding what, what he says in the first part, and also then going forward into to verse three as well. But that the the thought that the living lay these things to heart. That you know, the living lay to heart the fact that the day of their death is going to come, that there mm-hmm. is this house of sorrow. It reminds me of the way Moses writes in Psalm 90, particularly verse 12 of that psalm, where he says, teach us to number our days 
that we may get a heart of wisdom. I think there is something about the day of death, the the day of mourning, that house, that when we lay it to heart right now, gives us wisdom as to how we'll go through these days that we have, not only the ones that are the days of feasting, but also all the days that God gives us until we reach that day of death. Yeah, I think you're you're onto you're on something there. That really is a that 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 is a good way to to look at it. The numbering of the days that we we count all the days we've been granted on this earth, and in numbering, it, what do we find? We we find very quickly that uh, you hit that you hit that physiological peak around twenty five, and most of the numbers you're counting are the numbers of decline, not the numbers of ascent. And so we're we're counting you our think days. The peak is at twenty five. I think that's where they say that your your cells stop producing I was new. Thinking it's a little bit farther along than that. Well, it, you're gonna you're, you're physically you're not gonna notice it right away, but the the physiological <laughs> point at which your body is no longer in the process of growing, but is in the process of sure. not growing. Sure, sure. Even, yeah, even though fair. some of us do continue to grow beyond that point, <laughs> <laughs> not just the beard either, huh? <laughs> I have no well, idea what you're that, talking about. <laughs> right there, there's something you know. There's something to that in those moments of joy to think about where where all of this is headed and it may may seem a little unusual but there's there is wisdom in this I, I remember you know each each time there's been the birth of a child for for our family this especially true after the second there's that there's a great joy a great feasting that happens at the birth of a child but it really dawned on me after the birth of our second child this sort of joy is not going to be there forever there, there will come a day when there is no more, no more joy, and I, at least in that sense, at the birth of a child. And I, I remarked to the Bible class about that, that I'd been thinking about that, and, and one of the grandmothers spoke up. He said, well, you get it again at the birth of, of a grandchild, and that's, that's true. There is that joy. But even then, that joy won't always be there, and, and that day of mourning, the day of death, will come. And, and again, it may, may seem strange, like, well, gosh, you just had a child, Pastor Apple. Why are you thinking about the time when you won't be having any more? I think there's, again, this to put Moses and Solomon together, there's wisdom in that, so that in those days that I do have that joy and whatever else I may have from the Lord's hand, that I would, I would use his wisdom in those days rather than just go with whatever and at the end look back and all I see is vanity. Yeah, and lay it to heart that this is... These these are your your uh, well I don't like to use the pagan term the, your immortality but that's kind of the idea that you're you're perpetuating yourself and your own teaching and your own bringing up of your children through their lives and through their raising up of children and and doing the same sorts of things that you do that it isn't about the joy I took in this moment of their birth but rather the entirety of teaching them the Christian faith in the knowledge that after I have expired that they too will expire and we will all glory together in the Lord's kingdom together yeah I mean if, if I'm just living for that moment of joy it's going to be momentary it's going to be very brief in the grand scheme of things keeping in mind that day of mourning that's coming helps me with the the right perspective to seek after divine wisdom for those days that are in between all of it. I, I think that's a big part of what Solomon's getting at here. What Moses mentions there in Psalm 90, it's it's just very much divine wisdom. So and I think I think he continues with that same thought into verse three, or it's related at least, because he says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Keep keep taking us into Solomon's words. 
yeah, cool juxtaposition there. That that sorrow is better than laughter, and by sadness we are find we find gladness. In sadness we we turn away from those things that are the source of the external joy of this world. This is where where else do you find this? You you we will often hear of folks who uh, let, let's use extreme examples here. If you, you, you hear of the the person who is an alcoholic who has a, a just an absolute collapse, they hit a rock bottom position in life, and what do they do? They stumble into a church and open a Bible and try to figure something else out because they've hit a point where all of the other pursuits of this life, which is, and that's really one of those more hedonistic sort of pursuits, pursuing the the feeling that goes along with that, it finds its end in this depth of sadness turning to, to the Lord instead and finding joy there, which is the only place joy can ever be found in the first place. The other joy we have is this fleeting thing, this temporary thing, this hevel, if we will, this little sort of stuff we can't quite get our hands around. And yet the Lord is always there. And the Lord is always our source of of joy and peace and rest and all the things that we actually are looking for, we find in Him, not somewhere else. Mm. And so maybe to, to try to bring in the second half of that verse then, by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. It's only when my my face has that expression of sadness that I'm prepared to receive the true gladness of heart that comes in the Lord and His gifts. Yeah, and and uh, it, that's that's a very that's a kind of a cool little extra nose outside of me sort of statement that it's it's not by me choosing to be glad or me finding gladness in God, but rather God finding me in sorrow and bringing me joy. This is this is good stuff. This is not me doing it. This is the Lord bringing His gifts to me and delivering to me the stuff that I can't ever generate on my own in the first place. Mm, right. So, and I think this is important because then the the sorrow, the sadness of face doesn't mean necessarily that you're completely, absolutely down in the depths of everything. But compared to what happens in those those moments of laughter, that there's there's benefit to those moments. And maybe that's part of the the thrust of this whole passage is not only you know those very drastic events that we've been talking about but also just in general, the way that during those moments of sadness, God does continue to work for our good, and even then accomplishes a gladness greater than the one we might seek out otherwise. Yeah. And this, well, this teaches us too about, about the worship life of Christianity. When, uh, when we're looking for that, that emotional uplift, that, that big emotional high that comes from gathering together with the, with the, with the faithful on Sundays or other days, it, it really is at the times when we're not feeling as though we're plugged in, that the Word of God is still working and probably working a little bit more so than it was in those other times, because that's the times when me and my desire and my emotion are not blocking and standing in the way and trying to intercept what God is actually delivering to me. When I'm a little less dialed in, that's when God is at work most in in me and in my heart. Mm, yeah. So we're going to keep checking out this divine wisdom from Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Jason Casper this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. 
LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, August 14th. We're studying Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 to 14 with Pastor Jason Casper. He serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, prior to the break, we left off with verse 4. Solomon says there, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. I think this is related to what we were talking about before, but I think there's a more added when he brings up wise and foolishness here, particularly. Take us into verse four. Yeah, out of Proverbs, what do we get? Wise and foolishness. This is the this is the the things of the righteousness of God and the things that are separating us from the righteousness of God. At the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. And we probably can tie that back into this notion that this is this is at the the end of the life of the of the, the faithful. That's really the house of mourning idea. And that the heart of the wise is gathered there. We don't we don't as Christians flee from this. This is man, this is one of those things that as pastors we have to kind of deal with. You've got the folks that will come in, well, we don't really want to have a funeral, pastor. We want to have a celebration of life. And and there are different ways to manage that. One of the simple ones is what what exactly do you mean by a celebration of life? What is that? And usually there isn't a real good definition of what that is. The the, the idea is I don't want to be sad. I want to be happy instead. And we're missing the point. Being sad's okay. You need to be sad. You need to let you need to let that sadness have its time because it it can't be just blocked away and hidden away. That's gonna that's gonna fester and cause you even more trouble later on by not letting that that sadness be what it is. The house of this morning, th- this is where the 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 wise heart of of the people of God is in dwelling there because we find the we find the 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 promise of what is awaiting us beyond the day of our death. The house of mirth, which is where we go to avoid this, I don't want to be part of this sadness and this mourning and this struggle with the reality of sin in the world, so I'm going to go to a happy place instead, and I'm going to go do happy things. And all that happiness burns itself out, and all that happiness fades away, and then what are you left with? You're left with loneliness and emptiness that is there beyond the pursuit of happiness that doesn't actually fill. Mm. I'm reminded of of the Beatitudes that Jesus speaks, particularly in Luke rather than in Matthew, because in Luke chapter 6, you get not only the Beatitudes, the blessed are, but you also get the woes. Mm. And so in in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And then in contrast to that, he says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So there's, I mean, our Lord picks up on this same wisdom there. And I think, you know, not only in the case of, again, death, that the the difference, you know, there is that time to be sad and to mourn at that moment. There's wisdom in that. But even just the way that our hearts in sin would always pursue after temporary happiness. That if if I'm constantly looking for mirth, 
and that's the way that I judge whether or not something is good or bad, whether it is right or wrong, if it's all based on what kind of mirth it gives me. Well, I, mean, I think you can just look at our world right now and seeing where that sort of judgment, does this make me happy? If that's the only question I'm asking, that is folly. As, again, a more general way of thinking about this and not only at the, the extremes. Yeah, well, you can even dial that in more, much more simply to the, the the beginning of the divine service. There, There is a notion in Christianity that we don't like to talk about sin. We want to talk about the joy in, in gathering together as Christians, and we want to talk about how uh, how God is all-loving and all-embracing and all-encompassing and including and all those things. We're missing the thing that is the most important for us to do, which is, to confess our sins, to draw near and confess our sins to the Lord that we may hear the absolution, the forgiveness. We can't really access that joy in Christ apart from the confession and the absolution that go together. If we don't acknowledge our sin, we're heaping we're heaping icing up onto a dung heap and it makes it look like a cake, but it isn't. It's still a dung heap in there. And so it, it is better, then, to hear that kind of a rebuke. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Help us into verse 5. Hey, I see what you did there. Yeah. Hey, nice turn. Well, <laughs> well that's good. This, what the yeah. text says. <laughs> it's a very seamless segue. I just wanted to compliment you on your, on you. your skills as a radio host. You're doing such a fine job with that. <laughs> But it is, it's better for the, for the man to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. The fools will always praise each other and talk about how wonderful, oh man, you're such a cool person, you're so much fun to be around. I just, we just got to keep doing this more and more often instead of the, the wise, the, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of our neighbor that tells us, hey, that, um, that, that uh, the way that you welded that up is not going to work. That undercut's going to break and your trailer's going to fall off and that's going to be pretty bad. We should probably do this again and do it differently. That, that sort of wisdom, which exposes our failure, is good for us to hear. It, it gives us the chance to see that our failure is actually there, and we do actually need to stop and address the failure and, and make something different out of it. Right. And although that rebuke may not make me happy at the moment, it will be much better for me than just the song of fools. You know, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That rebuke of the wise is, is always better for me in the long run, even if it doesn't make me happy at this very moment. Indeed. Yeah, because, be, Well, and, and just to, again, to tie in verse 6 then, because that song of fools, that's no more than the crackling of thorns under a pot, which is just vanity. <laughs> I love that. That, that little expression there. It's, there's, there's so much... There's so much tactile stuff going on inside there. The crackling of thorns under a pot. If you've if you've ever made a fire outside, you understand the the how the function of tinder and how the wood fits together and all that fun stuff. But if you throw junk into the fire, it doesn't burn well. <laughs> it actually does. It's counterproductive. It, it disperses the fire, and you get the crackling and the popping and all the horrible sounds. And and I can actually hear the the sounds when we hear Solomon use those words. Because I've done that. I've put the wrong stuff in a fire. It's, wait, that didn't work at all. It was horrible. Sure. <laughs> although, although for a moment, though, it might seem like it it causes the flames to increase just for a moment. Sure, you, where, get, that, where, you get that little flare, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I think that, I really think that's a good picture. We were talking about what this word vanity actually means. That's a really good picture. It, it looks like, oh, this is going to last. This is going to be very good for the fire. 
when in fact it's just a it's just a vapor. It's here and then it's gone, and you you didn't actually accomplish anything at all. That's a good juxtaposition too for this this uh, pursuit of of mirth and then the and the dwelling in sadness. That chasing after happiness, after emotional high, after all the uplifting stuff, whatever that is, whatever the source of it is, it doesn't really matter. But choosing to pursue that thing, that's the that's the flash fire. That's the that's the the oil out of the pan that burns. That's the crackling of thorns. That's that's the thing that doesn't actually sustain. It's just a just a quick puff and off it goes. Hmm. It doesn't it doesn't keep things moving. Right, right. And again, all of this is is not to say that to be happy is wrong or or that it's, you know, wrong to smile or something like that. We can certainly go too far in in that direction and think that there is no joy to Christianity. There is great sure. joy in Christianity. But oh, it's, it's deeper. It must be it's, found in the right things. It's deeper joy. That's the thing. There is superficial joy in in the stuff that doesn't actually sustain. But underneath that, and instead of that, there is the joy that's found in the forgiveness of sins in Christ. That is joy. There is nothing more happy and reassuring and 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 calming in the world than to hear and to know from the voice of your own pastor, as if it were from the mouth of God, that your sins are forgiven. Man, that's a wonderful thing to have. And by the way, for you and me and other pastors like us, we got to remember to go find a pastor and hear that ourselves once in a while too, because it's just as important for us as it is for everybody else to hear that. That That's where the depth of joy of Christianity is. And then to come to the Lord's altar and to receive his body and his blood for the forgiveness of sins and know there that we have received exactly what he said we would receive, his body and his blood for the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. That's for us. He's marked you in baptism, put his good name on you, and dressed you in this robe of righteousness. That's that's true Christian joy, and it's so much more fulfilling and so much more so much more long-lasting than something that is a superficial feeling that we might chase after. Hmm. Now, as Solomon continues then into verse seven, it seems that he does begin to turn a corner a little bit in this section, and not quite. I mean, I think these things are related to the matter of of mirth and sorrow, the matter of wisdom and foolishness. But it seems like he he does start to to take that in a slightly different direction. In verse 7, he says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So it, it sounds like he's now going to start talking more about what it, what this wisdom looks like, the ways that it, it affects us in, in our lives. Help us into to verse 7 there. Yeah, this, this approach to the way that oppression is, is going to function for us, it, it is, it, it's, it's useful to look at life and understand that there is always going to be this struggle and this turmoil, and it is going to continue to pursue us. Even the wise, even, even those of us that are in, in Christ and in, in, in this righteousness of, of Christ, we are still pursued by the things of this world that are broken and that are causing more and more turmoil as they go. And so all the things that are coming along are going to, are going to continue to cause us trouble. And I, I like how he, how he says that br- the, the bribe corrupts the heart. There's a little bit of, of an echo of Song of Solomon from the beginning of his, his reign as king there, that you cannot, you cannot offer money to buy love. You can't offer a thing to purchase what you don't have. This emptiness that you have can only be filled on the day of your death. It's not actually going to completely be, dra- be addressed until that time. And if you try to gather something and buy something or purchase away the the feeling it's not going to actually work because you're still not you're still not being delivered the fullness of the promise that comes to you on the day of your death at the day of mourning I think you've done a nice job of tying that together with what we've been talking about so keep keep at it I think I mean just in what you've said 
Verse 8 then follows from that. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Yeah. And we're still, we're just piling on more and more of the same there. This thing is, it's coming to us at the end, not so much at the beginning. And that's, that's the beauty of the Christian life. We get this promise that begins in baptism where faith is implanted, and then there is the entirety of the Christian life that follows it, where the Lord is continually making us more righteous as we go along, even though we don't perceive that this is happening inside of us. And all of that is then delivered at the end of the thing. When it comes to its conclusion, then only righteousness remains, and no more sin remains, just that. So this is the whole thing. And what, how do we even get there? How do we even manage all that? Patience. Patience. By patiently dwelling in this life for as many days as the Lord has afflicted us under the sun that we may toil away. This is the, this is the Christian life we've been given. It's ours to have until our days are done. And who shall number his days? None of us. Not one of us knows how many there are. Only the Lord so, so talk more about that so that we can see why, in this case, the patient in spirit is better than not the impatient, but the proud. Why is, why is pride here the opposite of patience? Pride comes before the fall, <laughs> right? I think that's probably useful to, to throw in there. That makes, the, the pride is the thing that is causing me to look back upon myself. And that, I think, is really the error there. Patience is pursuing the things of God that are given to us. And proud pride is looking back at what a great Christian I am and how I've accomplished these things, whatever these things are. And everyone in various stages of their life has their own levels of accomplishments to consider pride. If, you've, if you're a pastor of a gigantic church, if you're a member of, a, of an organization that you're proud of, if you built something with your own hands that your children didn't die when they played on it, this is, you know, these are all aspects of things that people can gather to themselves and say, look at, how, look at what a good job I've done, instead of patiently and continually looking forward to the next task. What's the next thing to do? Just keep, keep after it, keep working on ahead, find joy in the things you do. This toil under the sun is, is part of what, what's been given to us, what the Lord has given us to endure until the day that he is, pulls us from it. Yeah, and, and pride is what would take that joy away, thinking that I'm the one that's in control, thinking that if I strive after this or strive after that with that I my can get own it. effort, yeah. right, that's what leads to the vanity of life under the sun is pride, and the opposite of that is patience, trust, long-suffering, letting the Lord be the Lord and receiving all that He has as gift rather than trying to take control of it myself. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I really appreciate that because it's not what you, you know, patience, what's the opposite? Well, impatience. No, pride. I think that's a helpful, a helpful thing there in, in verse eight. So then verse nine, be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. More, more proverbs here. It sounds, it sounds very much like things that Solomon talks about there. Yeah, absolutely. The quickness to anger, which, which the anger then is actually not a thing that, that hurts my, my neighbor as much as it hurts me. It causes me to struggle. It causes me to, to bear this ill will, which, which just eats away inside of me and takes away the joy the Lord has given me and takes away the, the patience, the anger is fighting against that. I, anger goes right along with pride, I think. These two things are, 
or are not just negative emotions, but they're they're actually tearing down at the foundation of of what we have as Christians to to dwell in, which is the gifts of the gifts of God in Christ. We don't have that when we're angry, when we're prideful, when we're dwelling on ourselves and dwelling on the the way that someone has afflicted us, which is unfair or whatever it is that causes us to feel this and experience this anger, those things are the things that are pulling us away, which stands in, in, it stands in opposition to be, to being slower in spirit and patient and calm and, and, and more, more metered in the way that we interact with the world around us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now in, in verse 10, I, as I was reading through this in preparation, verse 10 really stood out to me because so much, it seems of Ecclesiastes is Solomon contrasting the you know there's no joy in the present for you because you're seeking after things in the future. Here in, in seven verse ten he actually talks about well sometimes you you do that with the past. So say not why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So I, I guess we're not going to spend the the rest of our time reminiscing about the golden the good old days, Pastor Casper. Yeah, <laughs> I, lo- I, I do love we that. We love actually. to do that, don't we? We do, and, and and in every strata of society, we do it in the church, we do it in the civic realm, we do it in government, we do it everywhere. Yesterday was always better than today, which is which is the the best things lay ahead of us view of how the future is always going to be better than the past is one error. And the the correction to that is not dwelling in the glory of the past. That's just the other ditch. These really are both the same error. It's it is it is the the right nowness of the the gift of, of God's word wisdom to us. That is where the the gift of of what we receive in this patience is delivered. It's not delivered in the glory of how much better tomorrow will be, and it's not delivered in how great things were yesterday, but boy, it's never going to be that good again. All that is the wrong answer. The right answer is what are we what are we receiving now? This is what the Lord is giving us now. So let's stop. Let's, as as Solomon's going to talk elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, or has already. I lost track of where we are in in the midst of the book here. But there is this discussion of of how we should dwell and enjoy what we have at this moment in time. For as many days as we are afflicted on the earth, find joy, eat, drink, be merry, enjoy the work that you have before you. This is the this is the right nowness of what the Lord has given you. Yesterday doesn't matter. Tomorrow doesn't matter. The Lord is giving you things today. This is where it is. Yeah, and I mean, this isn't to say that there's not something to be learned from the past. There, there are things. There is wisdom in, in recognizing what has come before you and learning from that. But to sit there and say, oh, if only it was the 1950s again, and and all I mean all the things because those were the good old days or whatever the good old days were maybe for us it's the 1500s as Lutherans I don't know like if if only everything was just like it was then then everything would be okay no clearly it was, again, the, it was the age of Lutheran orthodoxy that's really where it was I think that was fair like enough the you you picked the century time or something who knows but that's yeah right. there's there you is always the there's an, always an inclination to go to a different time and find that as the best spot and right it's weak it's weak it's failing. <laughs> Right, and well, and, and it shows that that's the pride coming in, rather than the humility of, of trying to learn and receive now the gift of God in the present. It's the pride in thinking, if I could make it like it used to be, then everything be fine. That's the pride that leads to anger. Solomon says, there's no wisdom in asking this question. Rather, receive this time as a gift from God. I thought Verse you were 11, go all, wisdom I, is... 
Sorry, I thought you were going to go all path to the dark side on that one. I was waiting. No, for the I wasn't. I thought about it, but no, I decided not to. You're the one that, that's referencing Beatles songs. I don't know if you've caught that or not. I, I caught Can't Buy Me Love and Yesterday both. Mm. So if, if for pop culture references, I, those are two that I've caught. I don't know if that was on purpose or not. Wow. But, well, that was on yeah. accident, but still, good catch. <laughs> so we should stick with Solomon's wisdom here. We've got about seven minutes left. I do want to keep covering these verses. Verse yes, 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. Yeah. Wisdom, wisdom, which comes to us in this in this day, which comes along with this inheritance of, this is the inheritance of salvation. This is not the inheritance of cash. This is a different a different gift that comes to us in the faith, and we are the ones who are still alive. There are the ones on the far side of the house of mourning that are at rest in Christ, and this wisdom that we've inherited from them. This is the thing that that they've given to us to to understand the faith and to continue to grow in the faith and to continue to dwell in the faith so that when the house of mourning comes to us, we are delivered into salvation because the Lord is preserving us there. Rather than dwelling in folly, rather than dwelling in foolishness and all the things that pull us away from the gifts of God. Mm. So then the, the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money in verse 12. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. What is yeah. Solomon's wisdom here? Just as money keeps you from starving. <laughs> it is the thing that delivers what... What you must have. We have we have to have money in this life, otherwise we cannot survive. And so the wisdom the Lord gives us is that thing which preserves us in the faith. He is keeping us and sustaining us and feeding us along the way. And that's why it's so important that we gather together with the faithful often. We have the house of the Lord that's open to us every week, and we ought to be there to come and receive. Not because we have to pay our due to the Lord, but rather that the Lord is giving us what he, what he has, and he does it right now, today, on this day, Come on in and, and receive what the Lord has for you. This is a good this is a good thing for you to dwell in. Hmm. Verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? That's uh, a good question. I can. <laughs> That's not me. Well, we the, the work of God is is contrary to our will, but we in in terms of us on our own, we will surely try to make it crooked. And that's that. That is where we're we're dwelling in the house of folly and not in the house of wisdom. What the Lord intends for us is that He is making us straight, and we should be remaining that way. And He intends to keep us that way. If we really, really want to make it crooked, we probably can. But let's just not do that. Well, so here, although this verse though it says He's the one that's make He's made things crooked. So, so maybe this is. Oh, I'm sorry, I, think, I was reading that wrong. But <laughs> well, no, but I think, but I think there's something to that. The fact that okay, so if I'm going to try to make something straight that God has made crooked, I can't. And I, I think that's that's related to what comes then in verse 14. Yeah, can you flatten so that, the mountains? Can you straighten the river? Well, exactly. So if if the Lord has sent me, as the hymn writer says, uh, Paul Gerhardt, you know, if God sends me my days of sadness, then I need to trust Him for for him to be the one to send the days of gladness, rather than thinking that I can somehow make that crookedness straight. He's got to be the one to do it, not me. And I think that's that's the wisdom and the reason that God's the one actually making crooked here rather than straight. Yeah, I think you're I think you're on track there. That's that is that is a good observation. That it is it's the Lord's making the thing crooked that is that is giving us wisdom. He's actually providing us with the thing that we can't learn from another way. We can't we can't learn from a from a method other than struggle and suffering, and so he gives us something to learn from so that we can gain wisdom and gain knowledge. 
Yeah, and, and then that wisdom is to trust in Him, because yep. who, who can make it straight when He's made it crooked? If, if God made it crooked, then He's got to be the one to make it straight. If, if I made it crooked, He's also got to be the one to make it straight, too. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to do this on my own either way, but especially when, it, when it's His work, He's got to be the one to, to make it straight. And again, so I think the wisdom there is to trust in Him. And again, to, to go more specifically than into verse 14, maybe you can help us tie these things together. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Live now. We were just talking about that a second ago. Yeah. This is this is the time for right now. This is what the Lord has given you today. And so sometimes it is joy and sometimes it is adversity. And all these things are for the benefit of those of us who are in Christ. It is to it is to build and to uplift and to make something out of us that he intends for us to receive and to have. And so he gives us all the things, even those things we perceive to be bad, which are actually still for our benefit. They're still for our good. He is still using these things to bring about good in our life. Enjoy what you have. Take take joy in what the Lord has given you. Sometimes he gives you good things. Sometimes he gives you things that seem like they are less good, but the Lord is always doing good things for you. Mm. Yeah, and I think this, this verse 14 really helps to tie together a lot of the things that we've talked about and what Solomon has said in this whole passage. So in the day of prosperity, go ahead and be joyful. Go ahead and enjoy the mirth, that house of, of joy while you are there. But when you are in that day of adversity, when you are in the house of mourning, don't try to flee from it at all costs. Rather, consider that God has made both of those situations. You can't find out what's going to be after you, so trust in Him. Got about a minute here, Pastor Casper. Help us to wrap things up with those thoughts. Yeah, what a great what a great little segue in the midst of in the midst of Ecclesiastes to get this this parabolic section here. This is good stuff. This this is helping us get a little understanding of what's going on in the rest of the of the book. We've got this real tight parallelism here that gives us the house of mourning and the house of joy, the house of mirth and the house of sadness, and comparing these things side by side and and giving us a, a broader and a simpler understanding, not broader, a narrower, simpler understanding that what's going on here is much more about what the Lord is giving us, much more about what we are receiving today, much more about what is what is happening now. All these things are immediate stuff. There isn't, there isn't a yesterday and there isn't a tomorrow. There is a today, and today is the day that the Lord is working your salvation and bringing about his, his promises for you and in you and to you, and he's delivering you all the things you need. Sometimes you need suffering. Sometimes you need joy. Sometimes you need sadness. Sometimes you need, you need laughter. But he gives you all these things, and this is where we look to the Lord to deliver what he has promised, which he does. Pastor Jason Casper is pastor at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. He has been helping us today to study Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Casper, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me again, Pastor Apple. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Ecclesiastes 7, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.